Hello. Podcast time. Let's go! It is the Arch Independent Show. I am Tommy. I am the host. Big show today, so let's get right to it. Starting with a little bit of housekeeping from episode number one. It had been a minute since I recorded one of these serious topic shows, and the host can get a little rusty. I did a disclaimer at the start of the last show to clarify that there is no medical advice on this podcast. And there still isn't. No medical advice here. If you need medical advice, please speak to a doctor. Also, for the avoidance of any confusion, let me say that, as far as I know, most physicians recommend taking the vaccines that are in circulation now, even if it's an EUA. The vaccine is the best way for a lot of people to avoid serious illness or even death from COVID. And I didn't leave it out intentionally. And folks who had listened to my August 2021 show after the FDA approval was announced, they recognized that I had done both disclaimers then but not now, and I can appreciate that, seriously. I didn't mean to leave it out, so please be clear, I'm not contradicting any medical recommendations. This isn't a medical information show. I stay in my lane. I discuss political science and legal issues, I discuss transparency and the proper function of government, but unfortunately, the way that this pandemic has been handled, it's put us all in a jackpot. The science and the politics are just hopelessly intertwined, and that makes it tricky. Outside the Ecosphere was a podcast to share the docket on the FDA's approved product, Comirnaty. It was a show about transparency, and by any objective standard, it's been severely lacking. Uh, The fact pattern here is somewhat concerning, wouldn't you say? So, I'm not trying to have a bad time here homies. They're giving me a bad trip. I got the Department of Justice telling the court that this FDA-approved Comirnaty product, yeah, it doesn't actually exist, and we don't really have any idea when it might. Then I also got the FDA telling the court that they need 70-some-odd years to release the data related to their approval, and I was like, huh? I mean, we're so far through the looking glass, and, well... I want it to be one way, but it's the other way. Oh, baby, is it the other way. Alright, I will not belabor the point on the FDA and transparency. Today, I want to think more about how the science and the politics got so hopelessly intertwined. The social psychology, the psychosocial. It's really interesting to me, because in a vacuum, I think that we would have universal agreement if you asked people, should the FDA approve products that don't exist? Or should the FDA withhold data for decades at a time from the public? I think the answers would be no, of course not. But here in the real world, things have gotten all just a bit messy. I mean, 
we did hear the clips from last week's show, the chorus of folks saying that there was just no way that they were going to take the Trump vaccine. And then that suddenly turned into, you take this jab or we'll put you in a leper colony. And that's quite a flip, especially considering it's the same exact product. It's not like Biden came in and they started development all over again. So obviously there's some type of phenomenon going on in the body public. And it's caused a segment of society to reverse their position on the scientific method based on their political ideology. It's not normal or logical to be adamantly against a vaccine product while Trump is president, then instantly pivot to being adamantly in favor of the exact same vaccine product when Biden becomes president. That is not rational behavior. They now say it's okay. Who's going to take the shot? Who's going who's gonna, to who's gonna take the shot? Yeah, there's something going on. I mean, what a phenomenon. You could not ask for a better case study in social psychology. So what can I try to learn from this? I want to increase my understanding of what's going on around me. So I am looking for wisdom to learn from. And the first theory that I want to check out has been pretty popular lately. Mass formation psychosis. And that phrase has gotten quite a bit of attention. The concept of mass formation psychosis went mainstream because it was discussed over on that Joe Rogan podcast. The lightning rod of controversy. That is the Joe Rogan experience. Anyway, the theory of mass formation psychosis is largely the work of Dr. Matthias Desmet. He's a clinical psychologist. He also holds a master's degree in statistics. And his theory is that there is a form of group hypnosis that happens when certain societal conditions are in place. Four conditions, to be specific. And here's how Dr. Matthias Desmet lays it out. Condition number one. People are experiencing a lack of social bonds. Condition number two. People feel like their lives lack meaning. Condition number three. People have a lot of free-floating anxiety, meaning that they're not anxious because there's a giant spider on the ceiling, but rather they feel anxious for no particular reason at all. And condition number four, people are frustrated, but again free-floating, wanting to lash out, but for no particular reason. And Dr. Desmet theorizes that when those four conditions are in place, people become highly susceptible to mass formation. If I may paraphrase Desmet, when people are lonely and they don't really have a lot going on in life, they may experience a lot of free-floating anxiety and free-floating frustration. However, it doesn't mean that the person is uneducated or lacking means, no, quite far from it. This is often a person that's a college graduate, who has a good paying job, but they lack meaningful social connections in their lives, and it causes a general angst and frustration. Now, if under those conditions, a narrative becomes widely distributed in society through mass media that indicates that there is an object that people can direct their anxiety and frustration towards, 
suddenly these disconnected people can feel a new bond. It's a solidarity with others who are all now in a heroic struggle against the object of the narrative. And with that bond, a new meaning can emerge. It's an identity forged around being part of a team, a movement against the object. And that's why people follow the narrative. Where they were lonely, they now have connections. Where there was no meaning, they now have purpose. And all of what was free-floating anxiety and free-floating frustration is now targeted on an object. And it's very satisfying to the individual, and that's why they're willing to participate. Okay, I think there's a lot of sense to that. I also think that that's not really new. I know that I have heard about this kind of thing before. Throughout history, people have studied narrative and propaganda. I mean, you know the thing. Hey everyone, throw your hate at outgroup. They're the reason for every single problem. And then you just fill in the blank on who the outgroup is. But I think what stands out here in mass formation psychosis is that the narrative doesn't have to be consistent or even true. What matters is that the narrative directs people to an object that they can target their anxiety and frustration on. And Desmond's theory during the pandemic is the four conditions were really intensified. The isolation, the lack of meaning, anxiety, frustration. COVID really lit a fire under the four conditions. Yeah, turn up the heat. They're going to narrative you like a spider monkey, Chip. And I think we can observe that the mass formation phenomenon has taken us to a place where the science literally does not matter at all at this point. I mean, we could spend hours going over the court cases and the injunctions where the government action was found to be completely arbitrary, totally unscientific. I mean, things like Stacey Abrams doing a photo shoot where she's maskless in front of a room full of kids that all have masks on. That's just routine at this point. We had the Super Bowl where all of the Cali elites were just chilling in violation of their own mandates and rules. For French Laundry Gavin Newsom, that's what, his millionth cross-up on his own response plan? But the mass formation apparently can become so strong that there's just no pause to reevaluate. These are now totally entrenched positions. All the science is gone, none of the contradictions matter, it's just hardcore partisan politics. And in my opinion, that's a really weird way for a pandemic to play out. But we're pretty much all forced to live in the world of the fake narrative now. I mean, womp womp. Doesn't really matter if you're not hypnotized by it all. You're getting dragged into it anyway. We all float down here, Georgie. Alright, good time to say that the community board over at archindependent.com will have links to all the stuff that I discussed today. I will post Dr. Matthias Desmet's full discussion of his mass formation psychosis theory. Of course, our dear friends in the establishment media big tech apparatus, they immediately flooded the zone to say that mass formation psychosis was debunked and discredited theory. 
<laughs> for real. I'm not really going to bother to reply to that, but I think it's noteworthy that after the Joe Rogan show posted and mass formation psychosis was a topic that people were looking into, Google was trying to rig the algo as fast as they could, and they were returning a bizarre notice that said, quote, results are changing quickly. It can sometimes take time for results to be added by reliable sources, end quote. Hey, the clinical psychologist with the master's in statistics, he is a reliable source, you jackass. Oh, what a world. Good job. Good effort, Google. I mean, humans have only been studying social psychology and the effects of propaganda forever. It's not debunked, bro. I have no idea who they think they're fooling with that shit, but it ain't me. The Madness of Crowds was published in like the 1850s. Manufacturing Consent was published in the late 1980s. This particular phrasing might be new. Putting the words mass formation psychosis next to each other in that order may not have happened until fairly recently, but the psychology and the concepts involved, they ain't new. And that shit's not debunked, this shit's well studied. In fact, let's get into Manufacturing Consent, the publication by Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman. I feel like most people are aware of Manufacturing Consent, but I could be wrong about that. I feel like Noam Chomsky is pretty famous, but I could be wrong about that too. Either way, Manufacturing Consent was published in 1988, and it was authored by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman. Chomsky being the more recognizable name of the two, but Ed Herman was really the primary author. If you're into curriculum vitae, Herman was a professor of finance at Wharton. He also taught at Penn Communication School, Herman had actually been working on the theory of manufacturing consent for years prior, including a 1981 publication titled Corporate Control, Corporate Power. As a quick sidebar, Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, Cornell West, they have all been talking about this stuff for literally decades. And it doesn't matter if you call it manufacturing consent, or if you call it mass formation psychosis, or if you call it the madness of crowds, or anything in between, there are clearly observable attempts to achieve a sort of hypnosis of the public via mass media propaganda. Today's show features theories by Desmet, Chomsky, Herman, and I'm about to talk up Hedges and Dr. West here in this sidebar, but there are tons and tons of study materials related to the power of propaganda from the social psychology perspective, from the political science perspective, across multiple academic disciplines. It's fascinating research. The history of media techniques, propaganda, ideologies, false consciousness. There's so many great resources out there. But I really value the input from Chris Hedges and Dr. Cornell West, and I'm super comfortable recommending them because while not everyone is going to agree with their political leanings, they will not lie to you. And as far as I'm concerned, that's really the foundation of everything. Is the person speaking to me 
willing to lie so they can advance their agenda. Donald Trump is, Joe Biden is, Nancy Pelosi is, Mitch McConnell is, CNN is, Fox News is, the New York Times is, the Washington Post is, you get the point. Cornell West and Chris Hedges are not. And that's why they're cool with me. I like people who are intellectually honest. If you're straight with me, I'm like, yeah, I can chill with you. And semi-related, I think that's a big part of why the Joe Rogan experience is such a popular show. He's not lying to his audience. And people can tell. I mean, sure, Rogan talks to some really far-out guests at times, but he's not a marketing department for them. It's understandable if you don't care for Rogan because he's throwing around like a hundred N-bombs, but Joe isn't dangerous misinformation or any of that nonsense. It's a podcast that's having genuine conversations. But to get back on track here, the theory of manufactured consent, in summary, what Chomsky and Herman put forth is that consent can be manufactured via five filters of the mass media machine. Utah, give me five. Ah, You can't just shoehorn a Johnny Utah gag in just anywhere, can you? Joke only stays funny for so long, Tom. Then you start making an ass of yourself. Five filters. Manufacturing consent. Filter number one. Size, ownership, and profit orientation. The dominant mass media outlets are large, profit-based operations, and therefore they must cater to the financial interests of the owners, such as corporations and investors. Large capital investment is required for mass communications technology that's required to reach a mass audience. Okay, well, remember, this was published in the late 80s, And you really did need big capital to get in the mass media game back then. This is an interesting filter because obviously in the modern era, in the internet age, the barrier to entry is gone. Anyone can be a content provider now. But there probably are still some elements of financial backing to really scale up a media venture. It seems fair to say that Filter number one probably needs a bit of updating for 2022, but it's the concept that large corporations kind of control the media world. Filter number two, the advertising license. Since the majority of revenue of major media is derived from advertising, advertisers have de facto veto on content media must cater to the prejudices and desires of their advertisers. Well, that's never changed. The advertiser's veto is still a thing. It's even been weaponized to the point where people will just astroturf attacks on advertisers, where the advertiser might be perfectly content with the partnership, but then from out of nowhere, here comes a funded outrage campaign Just off the top of my head, not too long ago, Pepsi pulled an ad that had Kendall Jenner giving a Pepsi to a cop. But the narrative at that time was defund the police and fuck the cops. 
So the de facto veto kicked in, and the ad that had kindness to a police officer, that had to go. And the universe has an absolutely wonderful sense of humor, because as I record this show, police brutality is suddenly not that big of a deal. The narrative has flipped, and it's okay to cheer on the Canadian cops as they beat the hell out of the trucker protesters up there in Ottawa. They can trample them with horses, and you're supposed to be cool with that now. It's another example of how the narrative doesn't have to really be consistent or make any sense at all. You can always get these mass formation psychosis, manufactured consent out of narratives that make no sense. I totally got off track. The advertising license to do business, that hasn't changed. Filter number three, sourcing. Herman and Chomsky suggest that large bureaucracies of the powerful subsidize the mass media by granting them special access, provided that mass media report the news as the source would like it to be heard. Holy shit, what a great point. Media trades integrity for access all the time. You know what immediately comes to mind? The Major League Baseball lockout. You want access to the press box, the media dinner, the locker room? Well, you'll report labor disputes in the light most favorable to the owner, or all that access is going to be gone. Do you think it's a coincidence that essentially all media takes the owner's side, whether it's a labor dispute or whether the public's debating if they should fund a new stadium? The media becomes a marketing department for the owners. And that's just the sports example that came to my mind. It's universal. Publish what we want to be heard or we'll cut your fucking access off. And it's a powerful tool. It really gets abused when we start talking about FBI, CIA, Department of Defense, Department of State, etc. Filter number four, Fleck and the Enforcers. Any individual or entity that attempts to challenge power will be punished and pushed to the margins. When a journalist, a whistleblower, or a source strays from the consensus, they will get flack. When a story is inconvenient for the powers that be, the flack machine will activate to discredit and smear to divert the conversation. Oh boy. Flack. What a great word. Not sure that really needs much additional explanation, but I want to talk about it more anyway. But let me finish out the filters here before I do. Number five, the common enemy. To manufacture consent, you need an enemy, a target, a boogeyman that people can focus on. There's that concept again. You know the thing. Hey everyone, throw your hate at the outgroup. They're the reason for every single problem. And then just fill in the blank on what the outgroup is. Step right up and pick your boogeyman. When Herman and Chomsky were writing Manufactured Consent, they talk a lot about communism. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's 1980s shit right there, but stay with it. All that matters is that there's some ambiguous evil, and it's out there, 
lurking and you should be afraid. It's communists, terrorists, immigrants, insurrectionists, Russians, the unvaccinated. A common enemy that people can direct their anxiety and rage at. And social psychology studies are observing the same phenomenon where mass media is using this agitprop to direct public rage at political targets. Essentially, all of these case studies, there are massive disinformation campaigns and they're being waged by the biggest media outlets, which are usually state or quasi-state corporations. And they're just constantly bombarding people with these narratives with the intent to create a hypnosis. Real quick, pivot back to Filter 4, Flack and the Enforcers. Quit giving me so much flack, man. The flack machine is a legitimate deterrent. It's very powerful. In Chomsky Herman's Manufacturing Consent, the enforcers are described as powerful private influence groups that can really make it sting. It's like a Praetorian guard, if you will. And back in the 80s, pre-internet, when this was first published, the enforcers were into good old-fashioned strong-arming. A company like Disney, for example, they would threaten to pull their advertising dollars for any negative press, or they would outright sue to burden anyone who questioned their business practices. It's probably not a coincidence that the SLAP acronym was created about this same time in the 80s. In the modern era, the enforcers have become mostly big tech, and it's perhaps even more powerful than the old Praetorian Guard strong armors ever were. Because here in the modern day, the big tech enforcers, they can just de-platform dissent. Back in the day, yeah, there were only a couple of broadcast networks, but newspapers were mostly decentralized and it was way harder to control narrative all at once. Now the tech giants distribute essentially everything. They're in control. And if someone flies too near to the sun, they'll blowtorch them. I mean, fuck, man. They took the New York Post offline. Like, the internet is a great equalizer in some ways. The communication capabilities are just stunning. The internet has created this space where art, culture, news, information, opinion, philosophy, it can be shared across the planet instantly totally ushered in this great era of citizen journalism. Anyone can make a show, as you've noticed. But anytime someone becomes an inconvenience for a real-world power, they could be swept away. No matter how big or small, the enforcers will make you pay if you don't obey. I wanted to understand more about how science and politics got so hopelessly intertwined, and I think looking at these theories of mass formation psychosis, of manufactured consent, I think they've been helpful. And obviously, narrative shaping is a key component in social psychology. Propaganda has been studied for years, and throughout this pandemic, Mass media narratives have been used to try to redirect anxiety and frustration towards political targets. 
and it seems entirely likely that Dr. Desmond is correct, and conditions such as loneliness, anxiety, probably increase the probability that an individual will find themselves attaching to an agiprop narrative. And it's not that people are dumb or can't realize when a narrative is illogical or inconsistent. It's that the truth of the narrative has become irrelevant. The motive, the, the satisfaction, comes from the social bond, from being on the team that's part of the cause. And COVID really cranked up those conditions of loneliness, lack of purpose, anxiety, frustration. The environment was ripe for this kind of manufactured consent mass formation. Amazing case study. And thank you to all of the researchers for their scholarship on this. Shout out to the Cornell Wests, the Chris Hedges, the Joe Rogans, among others, for always just being intellectually honest about it and, and introducing these conversations. I think that I've gained some wisdom from it for sure. Let's chill for a bit in this segment. Maybe listen to somebody else's podcast. I want to check out the Can't Get Right show with Kurt Metzger. Um, not like a super fan every episode listener, but it's a cool show. Can't Get Right. And I knew of Kurt Metzger from the comedy scene. He used to do podcasts with Sherard Small. I think he is down with Luis J. Gomez and the Gas Digital Network at this point. Don't quote me on that. I don't really follow the ins and outs of the scene. Like, if there's any drama between Sherrod, Kurt, Luis, Big J, I'm not in that world, so I don't know. But I do enjoy all of their podcasts, and I listen to them all, at least on occasion. I love comedians doing podcasts where they talk to other comics, because they're naturally funny people, and when they get together and cut it up, it usually makes for really good shows. And the Can't Get Right podcast that I heard was episode 115 with Suba Agarwal. And Suba is a stand-up comedian from the New York scene. I wasn't really familiar with her before I heard her on Kurt's show, but she seems really cool. She's got clips on YouTube, and she kicks some ass. Uh, to be clear, let me say right here at the top, I am not talking shit on Kurt or on Suba. It's just random that I happened to hear their conversation as I was already putting my thoughts together for the show, and it just kind of clicked. So, if you're not familiar with Kurt Metzger, the host of Can't Get Right, he's unique. Is that a good way to describe him? Uh, he's had some controversy over woke and not woke stuff. I don't really know, 
I'm not really into any of the tabloid stuff. Kurt's just funny, but he's definitely not the easiest person to talk to. I dig his show, and I think he's a really sharp guy, but he also goes off on just wild rants. And he's blowing weed vapes throughout his show. It is not just freeform content. It is fucking all over the place, all the time. But I don't mind that. And I'll post a link to the entire episode on the archindependent.com show board. It's a fun listen. They're both comedians. Uh, They're funny as hell. But they also talked about some serious stuff, too. And that's what stood out to me. They got into the whole disinformation thing. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. It definitely inspired me. So let's hit some clips. But I mean, it's informative at least. Normally, if I if I watch it, whatever, I mean, take your pick of shitty ass. Where do you get news from? You know anybody anything good? What do you What do you like for news? I um I'll normally read the Washington Post, and then I listen to podcasts like um yep. Pod Save the World and stuff like that. Oh, I've never listened to Pod Save the World. And uh, what a day! Yeah. Did you say what a day? Mm-hmm. That's like their daily version of that, and then sometimes oh, NPR. Yeah. People say that this is dangerous. Like, uh, yeah. I, I made like a joke about it. That was uh, what's her name? Oh, I can't say. It was somebody's brother that you know, and he says to me like, <laughs> interest that a bat that Kyrie Irving tweeted the Earth is flat. I'm like, why? Why would that be dangerous on any level? Like, that's the least dangerous thing. So what you tell me? A I guess. Point. I mean, honestly, like it I would have said through the damage that would be done. <laughs> I don't think it's NASA? like. No, I do think it's troublesome that conspiracy theories are becoming more and more popular. Because that's the problem with, like, these social media algorithms, especially with, like, they were taking, they were trying to mix, like, anyone who had a conspiratorial mindset and then get them involved in crazier and crazier shit. So, like, you start out watching a Flat Earth video and then five minutes later, you're balls deep in QAnon. Like, I think I think it used to be fun. And I think social media algorithms really fucked shit up. Because I used what to be... It used to be... QAnon? Is QAnon... QAnon's kind of dead now, right? Because of... Uh, no, they're still going. A bunch of people just went to... I think it was JFK's grave to make sure he didn't resurrect. I don't know what the hell they're doing. But, like... That sounds, shit like I, this. I'm going to take a wild guess that that's probably not a correctly reported thing. Because it's pretty... Dude, I have never heard of the JFK resurrection thing. I mean, it seems like a really obscure tabloid type of thing. QAnon, clearly one of those manufacturing consent boogeymen. The narrative that Q is this very dangerous thing that's out there lurking, waiting to attack democracy. Sure, man, whatever. To each their own. I think that's the kind of thing that they do over on Pod Save the World. The far right, where they'll be like, oh, they're trying to cancel me because I they won't let me speak at this college while I'm on a million dollar book tour just because one college didn't want to have you. But like, so I think like it gets tossed around who, a lot. Who yeah. Who are you talking about? Um, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene or it may have been Lauren uh, Boebert or whoever the hell. Like, you know, like, well, They'll co- be like, listen, oh, I'm canceled. Is, it's like, co- you're not canceled. You're a representative. Well, that, oh, that's all. Yeah, whatever. I, yeah. I, I don't give a shit what any of them say. Mm-hmm. say. That's now the toxic environment that was created yeah. because this is a thing. Now, 
I'll credit whoever, Marjorie Taylor Greene, that for some reason, and I don't know why I'm, I even know who she is. I don't live in her state. I don't give a fuck about anything she says. But for some reason, I'm supposed to know who she is, think she's crazy, and be like, what's she up to now? And and people that are nowhere near, then that's a media horseshit fucking thing. So basically, we're supposed to live out pro wrestling, all of us. I'm supposed to, she's like the Iron Sheik or something. Kurt is just fucking hysterical. He's also absolutely right, though. I think uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene is some shit for brains clown, but I'm supposed to know about her and care what she's doing like a wrestling promo. <laughs> That's how silly some of these mass formation narratives are, though. And Kurt just nailed it. it it's perfect. And make no mistake, the retards on the other side of the aisle, they're doing the exact same thing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, MTG, and AOC. It's like the same cartoon character. And we're all supposed to look and go, isn't she crazy? (laughs) Kurt is a funny motherfucker. But um, the conversation did get kind of deep after that. Now you can apply that to what they're doing here because all the radicalization wasn't from the fucking algorithm is because the people in charge aren't doing their fucking job or they're doing it poorly or evilly and as a result people are going to turn to all kinds of crazy shit some people go you know what you guys suck so much i don't believe the fucking earth shape and you know what i don't blame them i blame the people on top that are cowering from the people with fucking i mean the only casualty was a one of the stupid protesters. Am I wrong? That was the only death. For... That I oh, at the Capitol? I mean... Yeah. That insurrection was actually less deadly than the average BLM. And march. I do... Well, look, here's the thing. I don't know why we need to equate that. Because, like, one is a group of people who, like, were propagating the lie that the election was stolen. And a second group of people are, like, protesting the death of people of color and the unfair, like, the way policing has destroyed their communities over the year for government and capitalist profit and how like they're literally um the man who killed george floyd had multiple indications that he was unfit to be of service but again the police unions the system wouldn't protect the citizens that they're supposed to be protecting that's a but like that's a very different groups of people that's actually the same group that's actually a very great point we just said you could also apply it to fucking every fucking democrat in office now they're all the exact fucking same and a bunch of upper class twits have gotten it in their head that there's not the right side of history the lesser of two evils side of history and it's so important that you pick a side in the struggle between evil and the lesser of two evils i guess according to Alyssa milano i don't know who judges that shit that that what well, look i just think one group it's not difference what, it's okay if one group does it? Is that literally what you're going to tell No, me? of course death at any protest is bad. But to be like, oh, this, these are the same things happening, I don't. I think that's a false equivalency. Because like one is like fighting for the rights of a community that has throughout history been like disregarded. Like and an one insurrection? Is one, like what, an insurrection? No, no, no. That's what one, an insurrection the ins- is. The insurrection that's what you call is an ins- like... Insurrection. I'm not saying they're bad to have an insurrection. You could have a good insurrection. That's an insurrection, isn't it? That's what that is. I think he's right. They are fundamentally the same act. I don't think it's a, quote, 
insurrection in either case, but I really like the way that Kurt isn't hung up on semantics. He's not using insurrection as a pejorative. This is kind of what makes Kurt so awesome. He genuinely doesn't give a fuck about either side or what cause you support. I, I think he tends to see things more clearly because his degaff is so real. He has no bias, but he is kind of a ranting lunatic sometimes as well. And Suba, she seems like a really smart, really good-hearted person, but she's kind of got that pod-save-the-world version of some things in life. So I think their dynamic just made this episode great. So as far as if you're worried about misinformation, here's a good judge you if you really give a shit. What did you, what did you think in the Kyle Rittenhouse case? Did you did you think he was going to be acquitted or did you think he was going to go to prison? Or should he? Um, I think he should, but I don't know. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen. I think it could go either way. And what is the story you to your knowledge of what happened? Like what, what happened? Uh, his mom drove him to a protest and then he brought an AK into an extremely volatile situation and then got into it with a couple of protesters and shot them. Um, that's amazing. Every detail that you told me is so wrong that it will horrify you if you look at it. That was the only time that I really had a problem with anything that Suba or Kurt was saying. No one is required to follow the Kyle Rittenhouse thing. It's fine to have no idea what's going on with Kyle Rittenhouse. But it seems like here that Suba kind of let the dishonest WAPO NPR Pod Save the World faction shape her opinion. They were successful in imprinting a false narrative on her. They manufactured consent. And I'm not shit-talking Suba. She was perfectly cool. After Kurt tipped her off that she wasn't quite getting the real story, she was like, yeah, I should look into that more. But to wrap up the segment and bring it all together, here I was kind of wondering about how does science and politics get so hopelessly intertwined? And I heard this episode of Can't Get Right, and I was like, hey, there it is right there. I was pointing at the podcast, like that Leonardo DiCaprio, Rick Dalton meme. Hey, look. Hey, look. It was actually law and politics that were hopelessly intertwined in the Kyle Rittenhouse matter. But the mechanics of how it happens are exactly the same. Suba Agarwal certainly seemed like a smart person. She was funny. She seemed to have a really good heart. But even with all of that, the media environment is so polluted with these mass formation manufacturing consent narratives that she can't let her guard down for one fucking second or else she's going to get fed a bunch of bullshit. And next thing you know, she'll want to convict an innocent person based on misinformation that she's been fed by media. And that's a pretty bad outcome. It's not her fault, but we have some deeply, deeply dishonest people in mass media, and they understand how social psychology works. That isn't an accident. The filters of manufactured consent, they are grinding away. 
but hopefully I can keep getting wiser every day and keep their bullshit off my wave. Lights out, Arch Indie Radio. Uh, next speaker I want to feature on the show is John McCorder. Final segment, the keynote, and it goes to John. And I think that John McCorder is a really brilliant guy. Again, I assume that most people know who he is, but I could be wrong. Quick CV on John McCorder. He is an associate professor of linguistics at Columbia University. He's a prolific writer, probably two dozen titles, published since the late 90s. His work is generally centered on black culture in America, black history and linguistics. He also teaches music, American history. He's just someone who I think is a great professor, and I've learned so much by reading his work and listening to his lectures. Since this is a podcast... I figured I would grab some clips from one of his more recent lectures. Audio format seemed to make the most sense here. And I'm not going to interrupt him or try to throw my two cents in. I'm just going to blend the clips into a summary. And of course, I'll post a link to the full lecture on the archindependent.com show board. And the idea is that a group of influential people connected to colleges and universities seem not to understand that the heart of education, at least higher education, is supposed to be that we're open to various ideas and we're going to contest them in a search for the truth. The idea is that nothing is off limits and that people having different and even conflicting ideas is something that we should expect and even welcome. So that's the ideal of the university. And especially by about 2015, it was observed that many people connected to universities, both students and faculty and administrators, seemed to think that that was no longer true and that there were various things that we're not supposed to talk about on the campus or anywhere else. So the way this issue has often been framed is that there are people connected to universities who are against free speech. That's a mistake. That's missing the point here. What has crystallized, especially lately, is an idea that what is off limits is a much broader swath of topics than anybody ever thought until relatively recently. The idea is that there are a great many things that will not be said, that will not be countenanced, that should never come up in a classroom, that no professor should even put up as a point of discussion. To the point that many people feel rather strangled, not to mention persecuted, by this new ideology. And what's going on is something that has its roots in what 40 years ago was titled critical race theory. Today, it's not the legal articles that critical race theory began as, but a more general ideology that flows from it that has such an influence. And it's based on something that might sound very dry in isolation, but this is what the problem is. This is why I'm talking to you. This is why I wrote a book about this. It's this particular idea. That idea is that battling power differentials is supposed to be central 
to all intellectual, artistic, and moral endeavor. That's what it is. The idea is that there are various things in the world, there are various ways of looking at things, there are various things we might go about. But that battling differentials in power is to be our central focus, not anything else, that. So, we have this idea that power differentials is not just one thing that one might address. And I don't think very many people would argue that there does need to be a constant concern with the fact that power can be destructive, with the fact that there is inequality and injustice baked into any modern society. These things must concern us. But the new idea is that those concerns have to be central. They are the main meal. Nothing else is terribly important. Now, no one puts it this way, but that is the critical race theory idea. That is the idea that has acquired such influence on college campuses. And a whole generation is coming of age under this environment. That's when things get disturbing and people start writing articles and books. Because what's happened is that this CRT, this critical race theory, way of looking at things, is no longer being wielded as one perspective out of many. It's become a religion. And I don't mean like a religion. It is a religion. It actually has replaced, for many of the people who wield this ideology, what, for example, devout Christianity would have done for them, say, a hundred years ago. We are witnessing the birth of a new religion. I feel almost privileged that within my lifetime I have witnessed a new religion being born. And as with all religions that are born, the people who think this way don't think of themselves as religious. No Christian in 1400 thought of themselves as something called religious. The word didn't exist. It was thought of as just the way things are. It was thought of as truth. Well, now there's a new religion. And what this means is that people aren't only expressing a view. What they're telling you is that if you don't agree with this view, you're immoral. You're not supposed to be in the room. And as a result, not only are we dealing with people who, for example, won't let you enjoy My Fair Lady. That was fine, you know, in 1995 when I heard it. The idea is that if you don't think of power differentials as at the very focus of all intellectual, moral, and artistic endeavor, you're a heretic. You don't deserve your job. You can't participate in the conversation. And more to the point, you should be tarred on social media as an immoral person, as a racist, as a white supremacist. The idea being that we will not tolerate anybody who dissents from this particular point of view because it's immoral. And because the people who think this way honestly see themselves as having found a truth, a kind of truth that it's worth even a little bit of nastiness and even a lot of nastiness in order to forge. There's an expression that if you want to make an omelet, you've got to crack some eggs and no revolution is tidy. The idea is we are going to forge ahead and if some people get hurt feelings and if sometimes some of this gets overdone and in the final reckoning, some people will be revealed not to have been moral actors. Well, that's the way things go. It's medieval. The parallels with the way somebody who engaged in the life of the mind or the life of the artist or the intersection between the two, seven and 800 years ago in Europe and the way we're being encouraged to think now, the parallels are almost eerie. 
The only thing that's different is the vocabulary used. And this new religion uses a particular suite of words that are elegant and somewhat frightening. White supremacist, for anybody in America to be called a white supremacist, scares you to your socks. And as a result, it's easy to think that it's sophisticated when actually it's a rather blunt, brusque, and crude religion. It's not a good religion, if you ask me. I sincerely believe that the people who are members of this religion think of themselves as bearers of a truth. That's not crazy, that's not evil, but it's also extremely dangerous. And so if you just pull the camera back, you see that, yes, power differentials must be battled, sure. But for that to be the central focus of everything that we concentrate our energy on is something quite different. And what it really is, I hate to say, is that it's anti-intellectual, for one. It's a very important and yet rather easy way of looking at the world that discourages engaging with nuance, that discourages engaging with complexity, and discourages engaging with roughly 96% of what any intellectual endeavor consists of in favor of thinking about the power differentials. There are even people arguing and being given attention that subjects like physics need to change, that they need to open up to ways of analyzing things that aren't about getting the exact answer, that aren't about something as quote unquote white as precision, that physics needs to be more holistic. And if you wonder what that means, you should. And whatever it means, it's diluting physics to look at it that way. It's, it's quite simple. That's a dilution of the marvel that physics has become. Another, another point you've made, and then I'll go, I'll go to the questions, is, is that a, a lot of people pushing this ideology are, are, are not um, members of racial minorities. They are, in fact, uh, sort of middle-class white people. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, this virtue signaling and, and, and you know, what, what is sort of driving that aspect of this? It's a religion. And so, for example, I'm known in the United States for writing things about race that make certain black people angry. And I understand that. But my upcoming book about woke racism, as I call it, the person in my mind is white, really. There are black people who have this ideology. There are too many, if you ask me. But the person I'm really writing to is the white enablers of this sort of thing, the white people who are in charge and treating black people in these ways. And what it is, is a form of, of comfort. So it used to be that what you did to show you were a good person was demonstrate your religious faith. In this religion, what you do to show you're a good person is to show that you're not a racist. That's the goodest thing that you can show yourself to be. So it really is virtue signaling, where the virtue is not faith in God, but faith in battling power differentials. And so you show that you're a good person by doing that, to the extent that you'll do it even without much concern for what actually helps, for example, poor black people to become less poor. What you're doing is showing that you're a good person. Don't we all do that? But unfortunately, the woke racism channels it in a really destructive direction. John McCorder, what a sharp dude, and obviously intellectually honest. To the extent that I should add any of my thoughts here, I would just quickly say that first, 
I appreciate the way that John McCorder really challenges me when he says that there is no absolute free speech. That makes me start thinking in overdrive because I feel very much rooted in a free speech absolutist paradigm. And I may be doing that to a fault because I think that John is correct that there is such a thing as intellectual advance. Who's got time for anyone who wants to say that slavery should be allowed or that women shouldn't vote? Like, at the fundamental level, I support the right to say it, but at every other level, that's fucking clown world shit, so shut up. So I very much appreciate having to go through the exercise of would I really be a free speech absolutist? It's easy to sit here and bark it, tell you how great I would be on consistency, but McCorder's got a point and it's something that I'm going to need to think more about. Next, how brilliant was his statement that anthropologists from the future would likely view our current universities as churches. Uh, He makes such a strong argument for all the ways that we are seeing the birth of a new religion I mean, it's not just manufactured consent. It's not just mass formation psychosis. This has gone way past the tipping point. This is now a straight up religion and a very crude one at that. Also, like John was saying, the way that I learned critical race theory is so drastically different from the way that CRT is generally defined today. I learned critical race theory as a legal framework, and it's a really important component of legitimate restorative justice. There are massive, massive systemic problems in the United States, particularly in the judicial branch, and CRT has been a great advance in both civil and criminal litigation. I'll post a link on the show board to the work of Bell, Crenshaw, Delgado. It's unfortunate that CRT has been sort of hijacked by frauds like Nora Jones and Robin DiAngelo. I get that grifters, profiteers, they're gonna do what they do, but they really are tarnishing an important tool for justice. And they've done it to the point where CRT is now another one of those manufacturing consent boogeymen. Hide your kids. Hide your kids, everyone. The big, scary CRT is going to get them. And that sucks. Lastly, the phrase that McCorder uses that I like so much is, quote, you don't need to be a purposeless extremist to be a good person, end quote. John pushes back against that whole manufactured narrative that if you're not hard left, then you're immoral. And Again, it ties back to how it's really become a religion at this point. There are people that truly believe you're a broken person if you do not see the light and join their ideology. But as John McCorder was so diligently explaining, it's not just a crude religion, it's also anti-intellectual. The tenets are simplistic and trite, The high priests that preach this stuff are generally hateful and intolerant. I mean, 
I'm sure I wouldn't have enjoyed the Inquisition very much either. These kind of religious crusades, they just aren't really cool. 